began last week. <laughs> we began last week the second letter. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to summarize where we are, and then we're going to open up the third letter. The beginning of the first letter, on the, well, the beginning of the first letter, was a complaint by a man called Binyamin to his rabbi. The point of what we're learning now is the 19 letters of the Trump from the far house, which is basically a systematic breakdown and an explanation of Judaism, both from a philosophical standpoint, but also from a legal standpoint. He packed a lot into these 19 letters. The first letter was the complaint, which I titled the, the topic. I loved it. I said there's something that the title I gave to the podcast that they put on the MRC website is uh, there is something very wrong with Judaism. And that's what he does in this letter. And the point we tried to do in the class was to elaborate other areas which we find Judaism severely limits. But what was Rabbi doing with that first opening is to try and show that you can look at Judaism from the outside and see some real issues. And the way he described it was quite brutal at times. It was quite uncomfortable to read because it was it was hard hitting and it was it felt quite true. But the main point the fellow Vinyamin was giving is like, how does Judaism achieve the goal of keeping it? How does it give joy to its practitioners? What's an example of an issue? Of an issue? Well, it brings misery to them. They've suffered throughout history. They spend their time obsessing over books in a really bizarre, unnatural and awkward way. They read more books again and again and again. And... No, that is no. not the last one. I know, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Uh, so uh, besides the fact that they, besides the fact they've given nothing to society, every other culture has given things to society. Jews give nothing, and they obsess on their books. By the way, you can put it into a modern context. We all love Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, and he speaks about the, um, the beauty of the fact that Jewish people have won so many Nobel prizes. Disproportionate. Yes, that is true, but that has nothing to do with Judaism. The people, they just happen to be Jewish. So let, let, let's really work out what is Judaism actually doing? What has it given us? And Rapersh says in the lens of this first character, he speaks to the, 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 the rabbi he's addressing. He says, listen, you appreciate culture. You appreciate um, uh, literature. You appreciate philosophy. You appreciate politics. Still, you can find interest in like, the subtleties and the minutiae of Talmud? Yuck! Like, really? Like, grow up! That's sort of the impression he was giving. And the response was, Rav Hirsch opens up with two really simple ideas. One, let's question your assumption. You assume the purpose of life is happiness. That's a good assumption to make, perhaps. But let's look at that for the moment. Is it really happiness that is the focus of people's lives? Are people really looking at happiness? Now, Rapersh doesn't go down that road. He questions that assumption, but then goes down a different road. He doesn't try and answer the question of, is happiness the purpose? We can look at that for a second. Well, let me ask you that. Is happiness the purpose of life? No. We immediately feel no, because when I phrase it like that, is it the purpose of life? It already seems to be like I'm subverting, like, you know, there the, are the, some rabbis or rabbitans who give talks on everything's about pleasure and higher forms of pleasure. So that, I don't know how they would answer this question. I think they would just redefine what they mean by pleasure. Yes. Yeah, like, how is uh, Bokhara and Kamali the linkage from Greek all day? So what? Like, I totally exactly. He said to me, how is 
I don't fuck her like I don't know they just don't feel like it's weak or whatever. How are you different? That's no question. Simply speaking, the way to answer it is when the Bocha is learning ancient Talmud all day, he thinks, in his mind, he's involved in a religious pursuit as well as an intellectual pursuit. That's what makes it radically different in, in terms of not the truth of it, but the mode of being of the two people. I always, I always I give the example of um, there's a, a, a secular philosopher, well, he's more of a historian, called Yavon Noah Harari. A very famous book called Sapiens, but he also wrote a book called Holo Deus, which is the, his projection to the future. And he says at the end of time, not really the end of time, but in the future when everything is automated, we're not going to know what to do with ourselves. And he thinks, well, the religious Jews actually will have something to do with themselves. The rest of us will be playing video games, but the Jews will continue reading their books because they think it's a value in of itself. The pursuit of the study is Yadir Sashem, to know God. It makes the study something infinitely richer. But holding that idea to one side for a moment, the, 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 the idea of happiness being the purpose, investigating that direction, but then completely shifting to another perspective, just to focus on that for a moment, we ask, is happiness the purpose of life? Or is happiness something we should be pursuing against all other um, pursuits? And we said, no. What, what, what does come before happiness? Without getting all tired on me. Think from a secular standpoint. Let's analyze this person's attack. This person's attack is about happiness and perfection. Judaism doesn't do that. Meaning. Well, happiness and smile can go hand in hand, but meaning. What do we want our meaning to be? I'm, I'm asking a question, but I'm, I'm like, I'm, what I mean by that is real. We want it to be real. We're looking for a marker. You'll see parallels between this and the Kuzari as well, but we're looking for something real. We don't care about happiness as much as we care about real. There's a, um, a philosopher called Robert Nozick who came up with a very, it's a classic thought experiment that everybody speaks about, but it's called the pleasure machine or something like that, where you get the option on a Sunday afternoon come to a room, it's coming more and more possible as technology gets better and better, but you get the option about plugging yourself into a machine. What does this machine do? It basically feeds your brain the, the experience of joy or the experience of life in a simulation where everything goes well. All those problems or difficulties you've had, the experience of it, a matrix type thought experiment, everything's perfect. Would you... Would you want to be plugged into that machine or would you like to live your real life? Now, let's say, let's say we change the thought experiment slightly, that I can program you to think that you said no, but you said yes. Right. You get to experience this life within this simulation, everything perfect, but you think you said no to it. Exactly. But everything will go perfect. You have to make a decision. Do you want to go into that or do you want to remain in your regular life outside? You want to go into that. So your existence, you would play out the rest of your life within the simulation, but you wouldn't be in the real life and you would take the option. Anybody else? So, well, yes, but the question is this, do you want to, would you dive into that world or would you prefer 
your real life. Different people take different. Yes. So, so that, that, that the answer would be no, because it's my thought experiment. You're right. You're right. You know, in, 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 if this was actually lived out in reality, perhaps you'd have that problem. But the thought experiment is made uh, completely made up. So I can I can I can play around with the variables as much as I want. Good point. Um, so the question is this: What do people prefer? Simply speaking, most people prefer reality, even though it involves suffering. But I'll give you an example that even those of you who said I prefer the machine because there's a certain non-conformist that was like, yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> Let me ask you another question. You're in a, you're in a relationship, you're in a relationship with someone, right? You're in a relationship and your relationship is going wonderfully. Can we envision such a situation? I've given you stories behind this printer. Jerry's biggest guy. Envision a good, a good situation, a good relationship. Now, now let me break it slightly, but without getting anybody upset. In this beautiful, wonderful relationship, would you want to know if they were cheating on you? Yes. Oh my gosh. What? Yes. Yeah. It's going so well. Going, it's, it's an ongoing. Ah, same principle. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. We'll get the most postmodern, um, detached from reality. Everything's just perspective. When it comes to a question like this, they all like. Whoa, whoa, whoa! What? What? Sorry. I don't know. I don't the rest of your life. That's very different. Your whole life. Well, your whole life's a lie. You're wasting the rest of your life. That got me the idea. I feel bad anybody listening to this in the podcast. I don't think anyone's been, everyone's been turned off by now. Oh, yeah. The point about these thought experiments are trying to show there is something about us that wants to be in touch with something that is real. In which case, the accusation of the accusation of the, the question of the original question of the pursuit of happiness is actually true. Now, obviously, there are going to be exceptions. There are people who would say, no, genuinely, I'm not, it's not a criticism. The pain experiencing or knowing, I would rather not know. And guess what? That is a perspective some people will take. But in general, people take the perspective, I would prefer the pain, give up the joy for reality. Rav Hirsch then changes the perspective. He says, putting that to one side, we're going to ask a different question. If we're going to understand Judaism, let's actually understand Judaism. Let's understand Judaism from within itself. Let's understand what Judaism stands for. I'm a person, I'm standing outside, meaning it's, remember, it's looking at uh, us outside of Judaism. Let's ask a different question. This is your tradition, this is your heritage. Rather than looking at it and saying, does it accomplish my goals? Let's, and I'm gonna use my language here, this isn't Rapash. Let's pretend, let's step within Judaism. Let's see the world through the lens of Judaism and ask three questions. These three questions were articulated by a man called, um, what's his name? 
Professor, Professor Sam Lee Benson at Kuiper University in, in, in reference to the 19 letters. What is Judaism's goal? That's a good question. What is Judaism trying to achieve? Does the commandments or the laws of the Torah fulfill that goal? And is it a goal better than your pursuit of your happiness? Can you say that again, sir? What is Judaism's goal? Does it achieve that goal? And is it a goal I want to accept? If I've answered all those questions, the first two questions, and the third question is, that answer is, meh, not for me. Fair enough. What, what else can you say? The person says, listen, I'm rejecting Judaism, but they've got some, I don't say bastards, but a, 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 a corrupt version of what Judaism is. And they're saying, it doesn't achieve my goal. But you're not rejecting Judaism. You're rejecting Judaism's ability to achieve your goals. If you can understand you, look at Judaism from within itself and then say, listen, I see what it's trying to do. I see its vision of the world and I reject it. Rav Hirsch says, then throw stones on it. Literally, throw stones on it. Then you can't throw stones on an idea. But the idea of throwing stones metaphorically is then cast it aside. But don't cast aside what you don't understand. That's his pleading with Binyamin. In which case, then he opens up the third letter, which we're going to look through now. But there's a lot of quotes from Pesukim, but we won't go through all of that. But we'll, we'll touch upon the beginning of the third letter, and then obviously you can carry on on your own. But he begins with saying, okay, let's ask, by way of introduction to the third letter, what is the world? Globe. But think about the world for a second. It, right, but that's not the Jewish lens. What I mean by that is, the Torah isn't a scientific book on the makeup of reality. So what it's doing. The Torah describes the world as a world that's created by Hashem. Now a person will say, yeah, but, but I, I believe in evolution. Okay, fine. Hold that to one side for a second. The description the Torah gives you is of a certain type of world. A world where things are created, things interact with each other, things have a purpose. That is the world the Torah is introducing. And once we see the world through the lens of the Torah, more ideas from the Torah will start making sense. Now, a person says, well, how does that fit in with my current understanding of the natural world from a scientific point of view? That is a genuine question. And a person can say, listen, I, have, I consider the value of the, of the scientific lens, I consider that valuable. How does this lens the Torah is offering me fit into that? And then you'll get books that try and marry those two. But why? Why are they trying to marry those two? Because there's something the Torah is giving us through the lens of the Torah, and this is something that the science is giving us through the lens of science. Well, there are two like visions, like I think it was called like by the chap's name, like the manifest image and the scientific image. There are, there are different ways of looking at things. There are different angles that you can look at something through. We're trying to look at the world in this next letter through the lens of the tire. Sounds like a plan? Excellent. Oh, no. oh, sorry. No, no, I just figure out how many. You, you want me to take a couple of them out of You can do it. Yeah, just trying to figure out how many. I was trying to get you to give me the whole process. Okay, I think it's three. 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 I skimmed it from Taria. The people's not bad. That's all real. I would think. I don't know. No, I'm not kidding. You're so happy. 
You can hole punch them though. Oh, is there no need back there? Okay. All right. I have left I have left you. Please pay attention to the reading. because uh, I when I read it, it, it not not that you're not, not asked to pay attention, just in case I read something wrong. Yes. I have left you time till this letter. That was right. So that the life questions that I, I, I touched upon towards the end of the previous letter might grow within you, and that you might perhaps have already taken into your hand, in the proper frame of mind, the book of life, which he's referred to as the Torah. We will now open it together. We will now open it together. You will agree, my Benjamin, that which that what we wish is to become acquainted with Israel, to learn the import and significance of this name, which you bear. Uh, sorry, which we bear by reason of birth, what we are and should be as bearers of it, meaning we're Jews. What does this mean? It means, but Israel is a historical phenomena amongst other manifestations of world of world's record. And therefore, the next question is, what is the meaning of history? History, however, differently, however differently we may conceive it, is without doubt the way to fulfill the destiny of man in the universe, in, uni in universal humanity. Therefore, the next question is, what is man? What should he be? But man is not isolated. He is a creature amongst other creatures, affected, by and, affected and affecting them. Therefore, we must ask, what is the world, Israel, history, mankind? That's weird. What is the world, Israel, history, mankind, the world? That they all can be comprehended. So let's just pause here for a second. So what is he saying? There are, idea history. So th what he was asking is, we have to start understanding the world. We have to start understanding what it means to be an Israelite. What is history? Meaning a person says, well, what is history? I know, I know history. But from a Jewish standpoint, or from the Torah standpoint, there is a certain history. What's he talking about? He's talking about the history in the Torah. Who, who is Israel? Who, who is Israel? Who is Yaakov? <laughs> Purpose or answering his questions like I don't uh, know. Aren't there any of these questions? We have to understand what mankind is, what the world is, and what history is. Now think about that for one moment. If you were any culture in the world can answer those three questions, a Christian can answer those three questions. Some of it will be similar, some will be radically different. The history from Christians, Christianity's point of view is very different. There was a virgin birth, and someone died for someone's sins. That's history. Not objective i'm not talking about objective call it theo history but where i come from is key to understanding who i am what's the world from a christian standpoint probably quite similar to the jewish people what's mankind according to christian something fallen now refresh isn't going to touch upon this but i'm trying to show that the questions to these answers are fundamental to understanding your meaning in the world if you're a buddhist or if you're a hindu you'll answer, you'll answer a very radical history of hinduism that has a very rich history. Not much of it, I believe, but it has a very rich history, it has a very deep description of the world and man's place in the world. 
and thereby you start getting a sense of meaning. Once you describe the world and man's place in the world, and then the, I wrote, I would put it on the wall, but the, you, have, you have what's called a world view of humans. You're trying to describe the world in a certain way. Mankind as that player in that world, then what are they going to do in that world together? How are they going to play in that world together? That's called a worldview attunement. The attunement between who you are, the world you're in, and what you're supposed to do there. If you look in parallel, a football player should be on a... Yeah. <laughs> a player should be on a football pitch. The minute you have a football player on a tennis court, we call that... That's right. It's true. When you have a football player on a tennis court, that's absurd. If you're a Jew... Right, right, but uh, uh, we've got existential world view attunement. Attunement, you're attuned. You're trying to attune yourself to your worldview, in which case, if you're a Jew, this is one of the issues that people often have within Judaism. It's like, maybe like a, a, a sporadic understanding of Judaism from like a devout, and this is orthodox, like FFB all the way. They have like an understanding of Judaism of like a devout Torah, like snippets of devout Torah, but they have no overarching worldview, in which case, like, there's a certain absurdity to life at times where they're like half secular half religious they have a bit of a secular perspective and they start in like squeezing in religion and they have to like make weird disconnects yes so i like your uh football example are you saying that like a footballer on a tennis court like should they be becoming a tennis player or should they be leaving the tennis court and going to find a football they should be leaving the tennis court and finding a football pitch but what they should be doing in my particular metaphor i'm not sure but no, but you the, mean, like are you changing yourself to fit your this worldview, or are you changing your... With, I, I, I don't want to take the metaphor that direction yet. I'm just using a description from why he's describing the world, humanity, and Israel. So, okay. To try and give us a description of each one of them, to start describing the purpose. If you're going to talk to me about the point of Israel, what's the point of being a Jew? You can't answer that question without describing the world. And we might find this compelling, we might find it not compelling, but what he's trying to do is say, I have to describe the world from a Jewish standpoint. Otherwise, it's absurd. Like, if you, I'll give you an example, if you take a purely scientific vision of the world and then try and talk about the purpose of Judaism, then it's completely absurd. It doesn't make sense. You have a naturalistic world, like, eh, you've got to do something to achieve that. What are you talking about? You're in the wrong world. Now, the worlds don't have to disagree with each other, but you have to know what, what, what lens you're using to look at the world with. It's like when I'm, when I'm talking to you, I could look at you in, through the lens of, through my scientific lens, which I can talk about your neurochemistry. That'd be really awkward at a dinner party. It's the wrong world. But if I'm a neuroscientist, that's the perfect world to start talking about the neurology. It's like um, a computer. I don't, Rivka's a programmer, a very good programmer. Now it'd be very bizarre if she just describes her work on the level of ones and zeros. That's the wrong level of abstraction. It's the wrong world. She doesn't do that. Or, or, or transistors. She's levels up. And when I'm playing a video game, I should be talking about the code. Because they're the wrong, they're the wrong worlds. Rapesh is trying to... Yes, it was very weird. Anyway. anyway, all right, let's carry on. I can see that. Is without doubt the way to fulfill man's destiny in universal field. Therefore, the next question is, oh, we did that. Uh, they all can only be comprehended through God. The creator as a work of art is only then perfectly understood. When we have an insight into the plans of the master and to our eye, God revealed himself only in his works. 
Thus the Torah, the divine book of law, leads through the concepts of Israel and Israel's duties to the knowledge of God, the world, and the mission of mankind and history. Let us follow upon this path. What is he doing here? I don't want to ask questions like this. Not, it's, not, it's not a question that there's an answer directly. But the point I want to focus on is that is he trying to prove to you God exists? No, through which to, to look at it, so to say, like, like, look at it through this lens for a minute so that we can see how it goes. A, a person, a, a, exactly. And a person can say, I don't believe in God. I'm not refreshed because he's no longer with us. I don't care for the moment. I'm not asking you to believe in God. I'm asking you, let's look at Judaism through this lens. Now, when a person decides they want to adopt the idea of God or they don't want to adopt the idea of God, it's almost beside the point in this case. A person can go on, the, meaning, the person who's having this conversation with him probably believes in some idea of God. Most people did in those days. It's more likely to, not more likely, there are more people who don't hold any sort of divinity as part of that framework. But the point about this is, it's almost besides the point. Yes, if you have an idea of God that all the better for you, then you can start immersing yourself in this worldview. But even if you don't, you can still immerse yourself in the worldview. You can still start to see the world through this worldview. Because remember, the acceptance of an idea of a God is not a, a mathematical equation. The idea of God is part and parcel in what you mean by that term. And he's going to start describing to us what we mean by the term Hashem. Because, does that make sense? Yeah. He's also like introducing like the Torah as like the exhibit of what he's going to be navigating everything through. Yeah. So I feel like it's kind of like the biggest thing he did so far. Like he did in that last sentence. He's like, okay, we're gonna like, you have to think about the world and history, whatever. And the Torah is just the book with which goes through everything. And everything we're going to talk about is going to be filtered through this Exhibit A. Yep, like, yep. Crazy. Why? In a good way or a bad way? Fair. <laughs> All right. The Torah summons us to view heaven and earth and speaks from the heaven to the earth, from the earth to the heaven. Everything where thou seest existing came into existence voracious borrow like him in the beginning god was active as the creator see us through oh gosh the heavens in its in its eternally silent unchanging course bearer of light and he, he waxes the wings clearly the motivational forces support of the earth see us through the millions of sorry stars of earth the swift runner the um eternal cycles and passing away the blossoming and the withering of life and death, eternally struggling, ceasing and fading in death. Next time, I think I'm going to uh, allow you to read this part on your own, but I, 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 didn't, I didn't delineate which parts I thought were, either way, it's, it's, it's not terrible. Uh, to ever, it, I think it's just, it talks to us less today, the waxing and waning, but what, what point does he start just to give you a mindset when you're reading this? He's trying to describe creation to you. What does that mean? That when you look at the natural world, you're not looking at something dead. You're looking for something that was intended to be there. Voracious, borrow, Elohim. The first vision you have of reality is reality was meant to be here because there's a reason for it. And continues. And every aspect of it is part of this story. Those are two radically different worlds you can look at. You can look at the world through the completely deadening lens of an objective framework. Like it's just here in a sterile sense. But is saying that's not what you're being, and the language is very beautiful. You are being summoned to view it like this. Uh, see the light, the message of the heaven and earth, uh, leads to life through which every, see us everything is, and everything array, uh, arrays itself for thee, 
before we do this, in uh, pleasant colors, dost thou see the firmament spread around the earth? Um, all right, and dost thou rejoice in the firm surface of the earth? It's quite poor, actually. Which thou walkest safe and secure together with thy dearest ones. Hath thou pleasure in the meadow expanse of the leafy tree or in the living breath? Uh, the, the newer translation, I think, is probably less um, difficult. So, um, animated in the waters and in the air, or dwell with the, uh, thee on earth, dost thou see the sun, the moon, the stars, which from their celestial positions above you regulate the day of time, the month, the season of the year, determine the reoccurring periods of waking and sleep, arising and forming of bloom and decay on earth. One God exists, an omnipotent creator proclaims the Torah. Through his word, all was created. Heavens and earth and all are his work, are his light and air, his sea, his dry land, his plants, his fishes, his birds, his insects, his bees, his creation, his creation, his, cre his creation, sun, moon, stars. He spoke by Yehi and they were. Behold, all now separate, each being from the blade of grass to the vast sun ball, each of them special purpose, each um, uh, specially um, adapted in its form and matter for that purpose. The same Almighty's wisdom formed and designated each of those in its special purpose. The divine wisdom proclaimed light to serve the day, darkness to serve the light. The filament to be the heavens and the earth, the gathering of the waters, the earth, the ocean, and he's, I'm just going to jump a little bit. But he came and he says, all those forces thou seest in everything, the laws, everything um, according to which it was work and thou knowest and, and admirest and the force and the law in its obedience. Now, just to pause for one second. What does he describe in the natural world in this very elaborate way? He's describing the natural world as having a purpose. And we see it having a purpose. We're geared to looking at the natural world as running as clockwork. But through the Torah's lens, it's not clockwork. It, it, of course, it runs on a natural cycle, but he's trying to immerse us into the world that we experience being a, and he'll bring this out later, but I just, uh, I'm, 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 I'm hard pressed to bring it out, as a symphony. He's inviting you to look at the world as being an orchestra. Every blade of grass has, what would we call this in technical language? An ecosystem. Every part plays its part. Every part is giving to the parts below it. Not because it wants to, because it's nice, but this reciprocal giving makes up nature. Nature isn't this dead thing. Nature is this purposeful orchestra with every single part playing its part. Every single thing giving to the thing below it and receiving. And what would, um, what would Mufasa call this? <laughs> so, harmony, but it's for the light of that. Right? If, if, uh, if we can jump to exactly, uh, he brings a bunch of quotes from uh, he brings a, a bunch of quotes from Tehillim, and uh, therefore, I'm just going from the next page. Therefore, after he brought the quote from uh, he, he brings Tehillim, which I would definitely recommend looking for. Therefore, one creator is all else, everything which thou knowest is a creation, a revelation of this only one. Everything is from him, subject to him, through him created, existing, active, and this world may it be, what may it be, 
We tread upon holy soil, my Benjamin. We live in a divine world. God's creature and servant is every being around. So every force is God's messenger. Every portion of matter given by God to be influenced, modified, and worked on the corners to God's omnipotent law. Everything serves God, each in its place, each in its time, with its quality and its, its forces. The language he uses is that we're walking on, we're walking on holy soil. What, 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 that is a different mode of walking in the world. Now, I, I don't walk through the world like that, but Rav Hirsch is asking me to. Do I look at the world as being reactive? Do I look at the world as being part of the story? Do I look at the world around me as being this sterile, objective externality, and then there's me interacting with it? Is this all part of Hashem's creation? You, he's trying to train Binyamin to try to look at the world. Remember, he was trying to analyze the world. He was trying to analyze mankind. And then he's going to analyze Israel. But to do this, you have to be in the right world. The world is holy. It's sacred. We live in a sacred world. We just chance that um, all things are servant about about Sterofit, say, say to say, not one of the creators of the Almighty summon all things, the universal individual. Where does he? Uh, I'm just going to jump to here. He and his infant wisdom, and I'm on the last page, or, uh, ordained this mutual independence in order that each individual being might contribute with its measure or force, whatever much or little, to the preservation of the all. He's talking about that reciprocal giving that makes up nature. So that whatever, whatsoever being should be destroyed, a fellow creature should thereby deprive itself of a condition of its own life. Thus water, having been penetrated the earth, is collected in the cloud, the sea, and so on and so on. Let me just carry on from here. Thus one glorified chain of love, of giving and receiving, unites all creatures. None is by itself for itself. But all things exist in a continual reciprocal activity. Let's just repeat that. He's describing the world as being active, describing existence as being purposeful, and he's describing it as being a chain of love. Now, a person will say, but a carrot doesn't love anybody. No, but from our point of view, everything is in a mode of giving. That is what makes up reality. He's asking us to look at reality through that. Yes, the spider, it kills. And the, 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 there's, a, there's a horrible side of nature as well but it still is in this reciprocal giving which makes up the natural world. And that is the orchestra that we are part of. Let's say this one glorious chain of love, giving and receiving unites all creatures, none for itself by itself, but all things exist in continual reciprocal activity. The one for all, the all for the one. None has power or means for itself. It receives in order to give, it gives in order to receive and finds therein the accomplishment of purpose of existence. Hashem. Uh, God, love, says the sages, love, which bears and is born, is the type of pre creation. Love is the message which all things proclaim to be. That's a quote from Chazal. What's he saying with this? He's saying nature is a harmony. Nature is an orchestra. Nature is, the world we experience is purposefully put here by a primal creator. And what characterizes that? Reciprocal giving. And what's the shift he's now going to say when it comes to mankind? Everything in nature doesn't do anything for itself. There's no selfishness in nature. Everything is interconnected into a harmonious orchestra of reciprocal giving. 
when the animal, when the, when the, when the, when the, when the antelope, when the antelope dies, and the lion kills the antelope, antelope and the lion become part of the ground. The lion dies, the lion becomes part of the ground, and the antelope eat the grass. The, the, the circle of life is there as a metaphor for creation as we experience it. With her, she's describing the world like that. One, because he thinks that's how actually life is from the lens of the Torah. That's how the Torah describes the world in continuous stages of creation. As I'll say, the world was created in 10 steps. Why not one? Every step relates to the one before it. Everyone was needed to get to because of the one before it and the one that comes after. This reciprocal giving that Rapesh is describing the world, the orchestra of nature, nothing is selfish. Everything exists to give. That is what we call love, not in the intimate sense between two people, but that giving characterizes existence. And then in walks man. Man is to be separate from this orchestra? What is man's giving? in part of this orchestra? What is man's purpose of being part of this orchestra? So we describe the world. Next week, we're going to describe man. And then you start to build a picture. Any thoughts, any questions? Um, well, yeah, I don't know, but it reminded me of something I heard at a podcast by Professor Naomi Sidekin, where we can speak about the fault of their people. And one of the things I was was it related to where the fault even play along without believing it? So it was kind of interesting to hear them being like, you know, consider just sort of playing along without believing. They were like, I don't believe it, so I'm not believing. We earlier about like having continuing to what you want. Like, what you said first said, if you don't believe, then leave. No, it says it, it, it so the, the term belief and uh and and knowing it or the, the part of what he said leave if you want to leave understand what you're leaving but to understand what you're leaving lay along for a bit so that to fit it into the way you're describing it is that yes there's an aspect of that you can live your life as a Jew. that's what i say do you believe in judaism no i'm living an orthodox life that's what i say for you kind of terms once again feeding back into the happiness principle he's trying to be happy well, he says, I want to experience what it's like to be a Jew before I reject it. And the person says, well, how can you do that if you don't believe? But the term belief is more nuanced than that. When you ask me to believe in Judaism, I have to know what Judaism is. Judaism isn't this abstract principle to tick or not tick. Judaism is a worldview. It's not saying you believe or don't believe without understanding what you're believing. To really be really cheesy and feed it back into the parasha. Nasser and Nishma. I will do, then I will understand. There's something very true about that. You understand through doing and to be even, even cheesier. There is something very true about when people say, when I was younger, I used to think it was very pejorative and insulting. And as I got older, more mature, I realized there's something very true about it. What do people say about Kirif? Where does the real Kirif take place? In the home. In the home, in the child. Like, yeah. What does that even mean? What does that mean? Simply speaking, people grow a love for Judaism when they experience Judaism in its purest sense. And in its most purest sense, it's in the home. Judaism is lived out in the home. Judaism is demonstrated its best in the home. And that's why when people come from a secular standpoint and they experience Judaism in the home, they're like, I don't know, but there's something about this that I really, really find attractive. 
And it's not because it's going to make me money. And it's not because it's going to make me that happiness obviously comes along with it. There's something about the Jewish home that's very special to experiencing it. A person says, I started believing when I saw the Jewish home. The philosopher can sit down and say, forgive me, what premise did it add to? It's like, it's more than that. There might be some reason and rationale that I'm sitting on as well, but there's the experiential part of being Jewish that feeds into whether I'm going to be committed to it or not. It's not only belief and now do, it's you're asking not for me to pick a logic box, you're asking for me to immerse my life in a way of life. For that, I, yeah, I need my reason, I need my rationale, but also I have to understand what you're asking of me. To understand what you're asking of me, I have to experience it. And that's what he's asking Binyamin to do. This is basically a Shabbat thing. And now we take the first step. The first step is, once it's all of the category of history, Judaism is a historical phenomenon. That's true. <laughs> we have to understand history from its point of view, bless you. And the idea at the first stage, what, what is our worldview? What is the world? Any other thoughts? Any other questions? Natural. Right. Um, the first thing I need to do is walk with like, you know, instead of like, 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 instead yeah. But how can you get into the mindset of, of this? Like, you can't just say, like, this isn't like, at, like do this until you believe it. This is like, think this until you... Like, if, if you're coming with, like, if you're coming with, like, a lot of, like, rational scientific or, like, like, how are you supposed to adopt enough of... I don't know, like, to speak about creation, you just... Surely your instinct would be to be like, oh, well, For sure. But like, so how can you just disregard that enough to be open-minded? So, so it's, it's, by the way, uh, uh, the, the first thing to understand that if you were actually having this conversation with someone on the ground, the person can say, well, then I do this with Christianity. Right? So, but the first thing I would say is that yeah. the only person it would make sense to ask for Judaism is someone who's Jewish and who's interested yeah. in Judaism. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. He's not, he's not, he's not, proxy, he's not, what's the word? Proselytizing for like Judaism. No, he's talking to someone who wrote him a letter. He's interested, which is, by the way, thank you, by the way. Wait, this is a Buddhist. I haven't read it. It's a Buddhist. So, so the, the point that you're mentioning is very, very, very on point. This is a person who's writing to him who's interested. In which case, it's a, a person, I'm going to struggle doing that. Said, okay, you're going to struggle doing that, but I'm asking you to try and immerse yourself in this world. But also, don't you need to be able to, like in a modern world, in a practical sense, you need to be able to have be a tennis player and a footballer in a way because you're not solely in you're not solely public faith right. right. and, and, and to so how can you do that according to this so, uh, so according to this when it comes to um uh playing wearing another hat yeah the question is do the hats contradict each other then you have cognitives right. the question is can my jewish worldview remain primary and still immerse myself in, in the secular world 